Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So we are here in the jungle studio. Sans one member. Yeah, there's an, empty, there's an chair. empty chair where Ben normally sits, and a disembodied voice. Ben, if you're in the room, <laughs> <laughs> you know there is a candle on the table, <laughs> but it's a Muller Saint candle, not a Ben candle. We're not invoking Ben. <laughs> ben, why aren't you in the studio today? Because I'm in a palatial office at the Harvard Law School. Oh, you got which promoted. is larger than my office at Brookings and the Jungle Studio put together. And what are you doing in said office? I seem to be teaching a class at the Harvard Law School this fall. <laughs> I, ben I is extremely how you fancy. burst out laughing when he said that. Like, that's just yeah. inherently hilarious that Ben He is finds it as funny as we do. <laughs> Shaping future minds, Ben. Do they know you're not a lawyer? I, it's a Google search away. <laughs> Kids are going to be pissed when they find out. <laughs> I, my parents pay all this money. <laughs> He's not even a lawyer. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the surprise, stunned, and shocked edition. I'm Shane Harris. Frequently all three of those things. Washington has a way of surprising, stunning, and shocking us. I still, I've still not lost my capacity to be shocked. I think that's a good quality, right? I've not lost my capacity to be stunned. <laughs> I am perpetually shocked and stunned, but actually I am becoming less and less surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm shocked but not awed most days. Uh, as we said, we are here in the New Jungle studio with Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, and Ben Wittis, remote from Harvard Law School. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Is this the first time that we've done a remote with Ben? Nah. No. No. It just feels like he's here. I mean, like it's when he was here. a strong presence. It's yeah, hard yeah. to imagine. That's it. I saw Hereditary this weekend, by the way. Speaking of seances, have you guys seen this movie? No. Oh, my God. Wait, has Jacob seen this movie? No. No? Ben, have you You're seen Hereditary? Own, All right, never mind. Podcast no. listeners who are out there hitting me up about this. We have, we've got to discuss this film. <laughs> but this week on the podcast, horror stories of a different nature. Uh, <laughs> a, new, a new Inspector General report faults former FBI Director Jim Comey for how he handled memos about his meeting with President Trump. Meetings. The CIA isn't so sure about a White House plan to expand its presence in Afghanistan. I wouldn't be either if that were me. And National Security Advisor John Bolton is being cut out of big decisions in the administration. Um, let's start first with the IG report on Jim Comey. Uh, expected to come, expected to perhaps not be super favorable. Um, but Susan, give us the, the the quick and dirty on what the IG found, uh, and let's start with your reactions to it. So what the IG found is exactly what we've all known for the past two years, because Jim Comey literally told us this is what he did. 
But while Jim Comey was FBI director, he wrote seven memos in which he uh, documented a series of interactions and conversations he'd had with President Trump. Um, Four of those memos uh, he left at the FBI, stored at the FBI, and three of those memos, which uh, in his opinion did not include any classified information, he stored at a home safe. So from the get-go, Comey has said that he didn't consider these memos at his house to be FBI documents, and we can get into, um, you know, why or why not they might be considered FBI materials. Um, But essentially, you know, Comey believed, and and there's no reason to question his good faith at that time, that these were his personal materials. They were memory aids. People write memoirs all the time. And so this is no different from that necessarily. Uh, One of those memos he shared um, with a friend and asked that friend to share the contents of the memo, though not the memo itself, with a New York Times reporter. Of course, the contents of that memo documented the interaction in which Donald Trump told Jim Comey to see his way to letting Michael Flynn go, uh, the sort of bombshell revelation that uh, was the impetus for the appointment of the special counsel. so what the IG report finds, and, and and Comey has been perfectly open about that, that he that he shared the memos, that he shared the memos with three lawyers, one of the 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 friend Dan Richmond is one of these lawyers, that he gave this memo to Richmond, that he asked Richmond to leak it to to the New York Times, that he did so because he wanted a special counsel to be uh, to be appointed. So he hasn't hidden the ball at all. The IG came, you know, down and said. That all happened, and it was very, very bad. Um, Stunning. Shocking. And stunning, shocking. So essentially, the stunning shockingness, I think, reduces down to, one, the inspector general believes that these memos were FBI documents. I continue to believe that they actually are not presenting a uh, terribly strong argument for that. I actually think there's a stronger argument. These are not FBI materials, but it's a pretty broad uh, pretty broad language. So, right, the IG says, no, this was FBI materials. And the IG says, well, be- you know, since these are FBI materials, Essentially, Jim Comey broke his employer's rules after he had been fired, right? So he violated uh, FBI policy in in sharing these memos. Um, And also that Comey erred in not immediately notifying FBI headquarters when he learned that the FBI had retroactively determined initially that six, although a judge determined only one uh, individual word in these memos was classified. so ultimately, a judge ruled word. 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 one word, word, the name of a country, yeah. and I think we can all probably guess what the name of that country might be. <laughs> Rhymes with Prussia. <laughs> <laughs> That um, that word uh, remained at sort of the confidential level, which is the lowest kind of classification level. And I put classification, you know, sort of in air quotes here. I mean, a little bit of irony because this is not dissimilar to, uh, you know, what happened to Hillary Clinton when she shared information uh, and there was some retroactive classification also at the confidential level. So once again, time is a flat circle. Rhymes um, with karma. <laughs> the, uh, the IG, you know, spends a lot of time sort of table pounding for this, um, you know, that this is the shocking, appalling thing. It's it's not. Um, I, Although I, a number of FBI senior officials did tell the IG they thought it was, right? And that's what the IG is quoting from, saying that they were shocked and appalled and surprised. Yeah, I, I have a hard time believing that, although... Um, you think this was like I those movie reviews where they like slice up the quote? I don't know. The idea that you would violate employment rules after you've been fired... 
by, by the way you handle, you know, plainly unclassified materials after the fact, I, I have a hard time believing people were shocked. And, and again, this sort of reduces back down for me to this idea that Comey knew or should have known that these were super sensitive FBI materials. The, the, the way I sort of I struggle with understanding the IG's argument regarding sort of the, the way to understand these documents is that uh, I don't think anybody disputes that if Jim Comey had been fired and the day after he was fired, he sat down at a personal computer and typed out these memos literally verbatim, but for this one country word, the exact same words that he would, those would be his records. There would be absolutely no problem with him having shared that information with whoever he wanted to. Um, And so, again, the idea that what amounts, as far as I can tell, to a sort of a technical infraction, um, you know, this seems like it sort of just comes back down to the IG Laying out the the facts that we already know, and then given a, a really firm, you know, sort of finger wag, and um, I, I guess I, I suppose that there are people who are genuinely and in good faith disagree with what Comey did, but they certainly aren't reacting to the findings of the IG report. They're reacting to they disagree what Comey did two years ago and and have done since. So the idea that this is sort of new or that the findings are new, that this is a victory for the president, that's just not the case. And the one thing that this does conclusively uh, sort of put an end, an end to his speculation, the IG says that they are not recommending that um, that Jim Comey be prosecuted for any of this, which was always sort of an absurd suggestion. So Ben wrote a piece, um, you know, following the IG report where he, I think, um, unpacks a lot of the outrage. So I, I, I would... I would co-sign on, you know, all of his observations. But before that, Tammy, you had a question. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to cast my mind back as to why the inspector general of the Justice Department was looking into this in the first place. And as with so many things surrounding investigations, especially Justice Department investigations that have some connection to the Russia issue, there's this wide gulf between the messaging around this report and what the report substantively is saying, right? So you said that the IG report as a substantive matter finds this technical violation, but the framing of it is, oh my goodness, who could believe that he would do such a thing? And the thing itself is this technical little thing. And so it begs the question of whether this IG report itself is merely a spun-up political smear job to discredit Jim Comey, or whether there is some institutional interest here at stake for the Justice Department in trying to draw and enforce some line in terms of this technical behavior. And do you want to answer, try answer that and then maybe talk about your take on the message that you think this sends? So I basically agree with everything Susan said. I think the answer to Tammy's question is that uh, I don't believe the IG was engaged in some conspiracy to slime Jim Comey. I do think IGs, as a general matter, have a strong incentive structure to find problems when they do major investigations and to make their findings seem substantial. And in this case, what that means is taking a kind of technical violation of which there was never really a whole lot of doubt 
and kind of magnifying it into something that you spend uh, 10 pages at the end of the report uh, clearing your throat and pounding the table about. And all of that would be relatively harmless and relatively insignificant, except for one thing, which is that the thing that the IG is really upset about is that Comey apparently, according to the IG, kind of leaked information about this law enforcement investigation through Dan Richmond. And the information that he leaked, of course, was not classified, so they can't ding him for leaking classified material. But it was, from their point of view, law enforcement sensitive. And the question is, therefore, why was it sensitive law enforcement information? And this is what really bothers me about the report. He did not reveal any information about the investigation of Mike Flynn, except for one thing, which is that the president tried to stop the investigation of Mike Flynn, tried to interfere with it and get him to shut it down. And so this is actually the piece of information that the IG spends 10 pages howling with rage that Comey released. And so it seems to me what he's saying is that if you're a law enforcement officer and your investigation is interfered with by a higher authority, you have some obligation under FBI policy to shut up and take it and not do anything in public with that information. And I, I do think that's a, a, a kind of dangerous message for the IG to be sending about what is about as clear a case of whistleblowing as I'm aware of. But Ben, let me just push back on that. It seems to me that you could also make the argument that the IG is saying, look, if you have a belief that something improper happened here, there are channels for you to go through. We hear this every time with a whistleblower who contacts a reporter and leaks something classified or sensitive. Why was it okay for Jim Comey to engineer a leak to the New York Times, regardless of, let's say, the classification of of the information in question? But it probably wouldn't be okay for anyone else in that circumstance, it seems to me, based on past experience and based on what IGs have said and and other investigators have said. Well, so first of all, I don't know that I don't think it would be okay for somebody else to do that. I mean, as you know, Shane, I am not a softie about leaks of classified information, and I've never been a particular apologist for that. But I do distinguish between classified material and non-classified material. And it seems to me if the IG's concern is that law enforcement officers up and down the chain are going to feel liberated by this to make their own judgments when the president isolates them in a room and asks them to deep six an investigation, I say, fine. You know, if if you are a law enforcement officer out there and the president of the United States calls you to the Oval Office and tells you he hopes you'll drop an investigation against a favored former political uh, appointee and you keep it secret for investigative reasons until the point at which you no longer have the ability to conduct the investigation because the president fires you. And you choose at that moment to not go to the deputy attorney general who helped arrange your firing, to not go to the inspector general, who already had the memos, by the way, and to not go to the attorney general who is recused, and maybe to not go to the president 
himself, who is the subject of your concerns, but to give the information to the New York Times, I will happily concede that that's probably a technical violation of FBI policy. I'm not sure. I think I don't I'm equally sure I'm glad that Jim Comey did it. And I'm not sure that I would fault any other law enforcement officer for doing the same. Um, I do think there's a big difference between classified information and non-classified information. And there are some situations, and this strikes me as an extreme example of it, where the reality of the situation that you're facing has a logic that is larger than those contemplated by the details of FBI policy. I agree with that. I do think it's really important to sort of foot stomp that we're talking about unclassified materials here. So the fact that though that after the fact one word is deemed to be classified doesn't mean Jim Comey is out there leaking classified materials and, and that's not a big deal. This is And that word was not in this memo. Right. And so like so the thing we're having a conversation about is completely unclassified materials. So I, I do think it's different whenever you're talking about the FBI director and the former FBI director, because, of course, those are individuals who are empowered by the terms of their position to make certain judgments about what is law enforcement information in the first place, what is classified information in the first place, and what, what to share with the media. Um, so obviously, it's a little bit different whenever Jim Comey is no longer the FBI director, but you know, certainly whenever he's uh, first making those that documentation, first uh, leaving the FBI with it, first sharing it with people, it's an unclassified document. The other thing is, you know, ordinarily whenever we think about, well, whistleblowers need to go through appropriate channels, even if we're not talking about classified information per se, we're, we want people to go through those channels in order to uh, to preserve certain uh, – to trigger certain institutional safeguards and to make sure that information is not revealed that the person who thinks they're a whistleblower or is actually acting as a whistleblower doesn't understand the full implications of what disclosure might be. This actually isn't a case in which, say, if he'd taken it to Congress first, right? Or so you could sort of imagine, okay, Comey has these memos and he waits until he gets called before the SSCI and then he slams them on the table and says, I'd like to enter into the record these memos that I've written, right? You could imagine sort of ways for him essentially to give it to Congress, which is kind of the only real body for whom it would be possible. Using those mechanisms doesn't build in any additional layers of review or delay. Um, the other thing is certainly he – there wouldn't have been anything wrong with him just saying, hey, the president tried to – like the president told me to let Michael Flynn go. Right? That, I, don't, I don't think anyone's making the argument that Jim Comey – Jim Comey could have gone on television and said that and everyone would have, you know, just he, – he's allowed to say that in the way you're allowed to, to share, uh, you know, your personal experiences that are, you know, aren't sort of related to, to classified information. And so, you know, the idea that this is a case in which, well, you know, we expect whistleblowers to go through particular channels or observe certain forms, this, this just isn't – it's not that kind of whistleblowing. It's not that kind of information. Um, you know, so so I don't know that any of those equities would have been preserved. And, and Comey's, you know, quite clear that he said he was doing it because he wanted the appointment of a special counsel. You know, time is of the essence. You might be somebody who doesn't believe Jim Comey should be allowed to make the determination that there should be a special counsel, you know, but all he did was say, I have the one piece of information. I think if the public knew this would trigger it and, and I'm going to share it. 
Ben, just final point as we wrap this up. Go ahead. One other thing. This is the first inspector general that I am aware of, the first inspector general investigation that is focused on the conduct of a former official almost entirely in his capacity as a former official. Generally speaking, the IG has jurisdiction over the behavior of the Justice Department, not over the behavior of its former officials. And I do think it is worth scratching your head a little bit and asking what authority the IG even had to investigate Jim Comey's behavior once he'd left office. Now, Comey cooperated with the investigation because he's entirely unashamed of what he did. And therefore, he, you know, seems to have, you know, treated it as though it were a legitimate inquiry. But I, I do wonder, like, where does the just, where does the IG get the authority to investigate what a former official did at all? Yeah, I think we can say fairly that had Jim Comey done this while he was the FBI director, the president would be entirely justified in firing him. Correct. I think once you fire somebody, you may lose control over their behavior and their behavior with respect to your misconduct. All right. Let's talk about something entirely less complicated. Afghanistan. Uh, It was reported in the New York Times this week. I guess it was last week. That senior White House advisors have proposed secretly expanding the CIA's presence in Afghanistan if international forces begin to withdraw from the country, according to American officials. But the CIA and military officials have expressed reservations, prompting a debate in the administration that it could implicate negotiations with the Taliban to end the war. Tammy, we'll talk about maybe those negotiations. But first, what was your impression from this reporting about what I should say I read as kind of a bunch of people in the administration, the government raising their hands and going, not it. I do not want to be the one here having to train security forces. And furthermore, we're not, maybe you could explain what security forces we're talking about. But this seems like as we're transitioning towards some kind of a American exit, we're talking about leaving people behind to do some kind of training. And that doesn't seem to be a job that anybody particularly wants to do. Yeah, well, and not just training, but operations. And I think that we have to be really clear about this. So in many ways, the debate that's going on in the administration now is shockingly, surprisingly, stunningly not a derivative of the crazy Trump administration policy non-process. These are actually hard questions about how to withdraw from Afghanistan, whether to withdraw completely from Afghanistan, what American interests still are in Afghanistan and what we should be willing to invest in pursuing them. Any American administration who was engaged in these negotiations with the Taliban or contemplating a major drawdown of American military forces would be facing these questions. It's a good debate to have, but it's really, really hard. So on the one hand, there's this idea that has been a a foundation of American counterinsurgency in both Iraq and Afghanistan and in other places where we're fighting terrorism around the world, which is that we work by, with, and through local partners. And so, yeah, we've been trying to build up the Afghan military and the Afghan intelligence service, but we also have the CIA working with local militia forces inside Afghanistan to combat Islamic State affiliates or to combat al-Qaeda remnants and to fight terrorism in Afghanistan and prevent a new terrorist threat from reemerging. 
Those CIA-backed Afghan militia forces have been operating with the help of the U.S. military, with air support from the U.S. military, with technical support, intelligence support from the U.S. military. And so if we're withdrawing our military, do we want to keep doing that stuff? Is it like a backstop, an insurance policy is the way the New York Times puts it? Or can it just not work unless the U.S. military is also there? And, you know, on the one hand, you can see the temptation for a White House that is desperate to end this war, which I have to say, I think most Americans have forgotten we're still fighting. And yet we've had combat deaths in Afghanistan several over the last couple of weeks, including a CIA contractor. You know, so as they're contemplating getting out, it's it would be great to have a kind of CIA insurance policy and be able to say all the American military boots are off the ground. Yeah, we CIA, but that's that's not the military. We've withdrawn. That would be nice politically. Um, but as a practical matter, does it really operate? And then, yes, Shane, I, I think you're right that there is also a kind of political or bureaucratic politics accountability hot potato game going on here where the CIA is kind of saying, well, you know, if the U.S. military isn't going to have skin in the game, then don't, you know, leave us holding the bag. There's no way we can do this all by ourselves, and it's unfair to expect it. But I, I think the bottom line question is, how much is the United States willing to invest in staying in Afghanistan to hedge against the potential resurgence of terrorist threats? And how much can we fairly ask the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence service to do toward that end? Susan, I mean, it also strikes me that this is <clears throat> maybe Ben. You want to talk about this too, but this also happens at a time when Gina Haspel has, in her few public remarks, talked about how she wants to transition the CIA, not in exactly these words, but off its kind of post nine eleven counterterrorism war footing. I mean, this was an event that very much shifted this agency into a kind of paramilitary focus. And she now wants to pivot back to these classic state actors, hard targets doing the traditional work of espionage. This strikes me as some kind of operation that would perhaps indefinitely pull the CIA back into a place that she has been working to get them not out of, but backing away from it and making it sort of a secondary uh, focus of the agency. Yeah, I mean, we're reading tea leaves because Gina Haspel doesn't speak on the record at all, at all. Um, certainly not about this. Um, you know, that said, I, th I think sort of reading into her comments, it, it appears that the CIA is relatively confident in their intelligence gathering capabilities at this point and in their capabilities to continue to get vital intelligence moving forward. So uh, the 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 core of the of the debate as I understand it is whether or not withdrawal is going to allow sort of Afghanistan to become another sort of hotbed for for planning terrorist operations in particular terrorist operation, operations to be uh, carried out in the US homeland right sort of the uh, you know the the next 9/11 sort of situation and you know, from reporting about what she's saying and reporting about the way CIA and the intelligence community is weighing in, it doesn't sound as though there are lots of people in the intelligence community who are very, very concerned that this form of withdrawal will degrade their ability to to get that intelligence. And so um, I, I do think that you're right to sort of point that this is, this is really about a fight over how Gina Haspel sees the CIA role and really what is the role what is the role of the intelligence community? And, and also, 
how much can you really do, right? That, that there's some sense of, of either you're all in and you're committed and you have a, a military presence and you have an intelligence community presence, or you're not there, right? This this little notion of, well, you can you can still get everything you want and not have to fully sort of commit to, you know, there will be negative consequences to the withdrawal in, in terms of risk and um, and that you can somehow hedge against that. I think a little bit uh, they might be cautioning against that belief of sort of, look, if the U.S. military isn't there, we're not there meaningfully. And so right, like, you can't do counterterrorism on the chief. You can keep 3,000 CIA officers on the ground, but what is that going to do for you? And I'm using that number based on the New York Times reporting, obviously. You know, that said, this is one of, again, one of those weird areas in which the president, it is a really hard decision. Um, the president doesn't appear to have any instincts, right? He he generally, I think, wants the political win of being able to say no U.S. troops on the ground. But it's it's also really, really difficult to, to understand where the president's at. And keep in mind, even with a new uh, secretary of defense, we aren't getting Pentagon briefings anymore. I mean, this administration has effectively ended briefings, press engagement from the Pentagon. And so we're left. I mean, this reporting, it's, it's remarkable under the circumstances. But ordinarily, a report like this would come out and we would have the Secretary of Defense on camera the next morning answering questions. And here it's like we're all looking at each other saying like, I, I don't know. It seems like a tough question. <laughs> Although it's interesting that this report came out just a couple days after the Pentagon had its first briefing in forever in over a year, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs talking about Afghanistan and basically his answer to the loads and loads of questions he was getting from the press about the future of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan was, well, when they get the negotiations figured out, they'll let me know what the plan is and then I'll make some recommendations about our force levels. It's like, well, (laughs) all right, that's, you know, but at the same time, you have President Trump kind of going on TV and like coming out with what was apparently, you know, one of the U.S. proposals in the talks with the Taliban and just putting it out on TV for everybody. So the one instinct he has is, as always, to negotiate in public. Um, which is not a very helpful policy instinct. And and you have the military kind of saying, well, you know, we'll just we'll do what we have to do. We'll figure it out when we get there, cross that bridge when we come to it. And so it's no surprise in that context, Shane, that the CIA is like, it's not on us, guys. Don't look at me. Yeah. Ben, ben weigh in here. So I actually disagree that the president doesn't have strong instincts here. He has long ridiculed the engagement in Afghanistan and wants out. He also wants foreign policy wins, and he likes deals, and he also hates Muslims and uh, wants disengagement with parts of the world that involve Islam. And he likes to be able to say that he won. Uh, In addition, he also does not want to refocus on great power conflict because that forces him to think about Russia which he doesn't like, and he wants to think about power conflict almost exclusively in the form of trade. And so if all of that sounds like a muddle, it's because it is. Uh, And different threads of it pull in very different directions. But I don't think it's that he lacks instincts. I think he actually has a million instincts, each pulling in a very different direction and pushing toward a very different outcome. And so the question is, 
when he says things like the, all these different things over long periods of time, what filters down into operational policy that then when you are at the CIA trying to figure out what to do or negotiating with the Taliban, trying to figure out what kind of deal you can cut, what is the sort of direction ultimately that you've gotten from this presidential instincts, many of which don't push in the same direction or pull in the same direction as many of the others. Yeah, look, I I think that's an important point about the sort of in, incoherence of the president's own preferences. And, you know, this we've seen that on a host of policy issues. Um, and this is just one more. I, I think that these negotiations were always going to be horrifically complex. And I think that there's no way for the United States, what the negotiations that um, Zalmay Khalilzad has been engaging in with the Taliban reveal is that there really is no way for the United States to get out of Afghanistan without paying a significant price in terms of some, if not most, of the objectives that it has laid out of, you know, a stable, secure, sovereign Afghan government, a democracy, a state that is more supportive of women who were horrifically oppressed under the Taliban, a state that doesn't harbor international terrorists who want to attack the United States. All of these are American policy objectives over the last, you know, 18 years of this conflict. And we're not going to be able to sustain these objectives and still get out. And so if the bottom line is prevent another 9-11, what does it take to do that? You know, I think if the president could give that clear guidance, then the CIA and the military could probably figure it out. But right now, everybody's hedging because nobody wants to have to come up with that answer. The only other point I would make is going back to Susan's point about the CIA as an operational agency versus the CIA as an intelligence gathering agency. And, you know, I would say that part of the legacy of the war on terror, the global war on terror, is that the CIA has become more operational in a lot of places around the world. It's not the only arm of the U.S. exercise of power that has come under tremendous criticism in other countries because of alleged abuses, because of civilian deaths. But if the United States is going to continue to try to hedge against another terrorist attack by going out and fighting them over there or trying to prevent them from going over there, and we don't want to deploy our military to do it, then the CIA is going to be in the role of doing that. And that demands, I think, more of a public conversation about what the CIA is doing, what are its constraints, what are its rules, and what should it not be doing. Okay, let's stay on the theme of uh, Afghanistan. There's a terrific bit of reporting, if I do say so myself, (laughs) in the Washington Post by my colleagues, uh, John Hudson and Josh Dossie. Uh, about somebody who appears to not be playing a very significant role in the negotiations over our future in Afghanistan and a possible peace deal with the Taliban. Don't you just hate it when all your friends hang out without you? We forgot to invite John Bolton. (laughs) We didn't forget. Um, Quote from a senior U.S. official, one of a half dozen who spoke on the condition of anonymity to my colleagues, quote, it's messed up on so many levels that the National Security Advisor isn't involved, but trust is a real issue. The thrust of this story is essentially that the people who are at the table 
making the decisions on what to do in the future of Afghanistan uh, or our, our presence there have cut Bolton out because they think that he's opposed to the plans that the administration is making and they're afraid that he's going to leak the details of all of it to the press. Um, there was one standoff, they report, where Bolton asked for a copy of the draft agreement the U.S. is trying to strike with the Taliban and the U.S. envoy, Zalmakhil, is leading this denied the request saying Bolton could read the agreement in the presence of a senior U.S. official but not leave with it in his hand. This is the national security advisor. So, Tammy, just to emphasize this point, how unusual is it for the person who is nominally in charge of the interagency process in the national security apparatus of the government to not be involved in national security decision making? It's well, yes, Shane. It's somewhat unusual, <laughs> um, but I I do think it's there's so much about this article that is illustrative of what has become of foreign policy and national security policy under the Trump administration. It's not only that John Bolton got initially excluded from a senior a principals meeting about Afghanistan policy, and he's the president's national security right. advisor. Yeah, to basically beg to get into it. Right. You know? What's become clear is that there are individuals who own certain foreign policy portfolios in this administration. They own them because the president has given it to them and supports their authority. And nobody else gets to touch it. They get to guard their turf. And then there are other issues that the president doesn't really care about very much or he's not really paying attention to. And people get to sort of scoop up their own territory on those. And what's happened to John Bolton is that Pompeo is the secretary of state for Iran, basically. Zalmay Khalilzad is in charge of Afghanistan. And what Bolton gets to do is sort of go around and be secretary of state for the other stuff. That Pompeo doesn't doesn't want to deal with like Secretary, nobody gives a shit. Like, you know, Europe. <laughs> um, Which I'm or, sure pleases him to know. Right. Or or in an instance from earlier this summer, Mongolia. No, but like there are real issues in Central and Eastern Europe, in Central Asia, on the European continent that Bolton is dealing with. And then there are the other sort of weird hobby horses that Bolton has with regard to the UN and so on, where he's been able to advance his own agenda. But basically, what seems to be happening is that people, individuals in the Trump administration with authority on national security policy, get to push forward their own preferences as long as the president doesn't disagree. And if the president disagrees, he takes it away from you and gives it to somebody else. And you have to go play with your own marbles in a different corner. Poor John. Susan, this also strikes me as for for all of the well, maybe there has been a lot of reporting, but there's been some of portraying John Bolton as this kind of, you know, grizzled, experienced Washington knife fighter. Or appear- or as a Svengali yeah. that Trump listens to. Right, right. All of, none of which appears to be true based on this reporting. Or yeah, else so- or else that reputation is perhaps uh not fully deserved. Yeah, so the the reporting makes crystal clear that John Bolton has no influence, no credibility internally or externally, and no trust. So let's be clear. You cannot do the job of the National Security Advisor if you do not have those things. What's even more disturbing about this reporting, it's not just that John Bolton personally is being excluded. It appears that because of John Bolton's inability to do his job, the National Security Council and the National Security Council staff is being excluded. Not um, that he was really like backing up his staff and getting engaged on policy. He may have kind of started this by figuratively and literally keeping his door. 
door closed. Wait, and and it, it's pretty clear that one of his strategies in, in, let's face it, attempting to outmaneuver the president of the United States, that Bolton thought he was going to be able to come in there. And and it's not just that, you know, Trump didn't care about these things, that Bolton was going to be able to basically make all of these decisions and, and that he was smarter than Trump and he was going to be able to manipulate him into doing this stuff. And uh, he's a sore loser. And so what his staff and, and him appear to have been doing is just acting as spoilers because, of course, uh, you can't really conduct diplomacy when the stuff is getting leaked. And so every time that they they lost a fight, it was emerging in the press. And then that actually would, you know, kill a diplomatic or, or military initiative and, and was really damaging. Leading uh, to one of my favorite quotes in this piece. His team has a reputation for losing and leaking. Losing and leaking, which is, you know, it's a uh, an effective strategy in the short term, but not in the long term because eventually no one will show you stuff anymore. And so, you know, look, so what we have is essentially an entirely ineffective national security advisor, a national security advisor who is not capable of doing the job of the national security advisor, whether or not he wants to or not but will not quit. A president who doesn't trust the national security advisor isn't relying on the national security advisor for national security advice and as a consequence is losing all of the expertise of the entire National Security Council staff in, by the way, really, really important decisions and doesn't like to fire people, but instead sort of tries to sideline and shame and bully them out of these positions. And so we actually have the weird stubbornness of these two men, Bolton, who's kind of like, I'm I'm not stepping down. I'm not walking away no matter how sidelined I am. And Trump, who, you know, appears to want to try and just keep sort of pushing Bolton to the sidelines rather than just getting rid of him and bringing in someone new, Whoever that would be at this point, remember, third national security advisor of the administration were already on. And it, it's led to this completely untenable situation in which effectively you don't have a national security advisor anymore. Although given who the national security advisor is, there are probably a lot of people in this town who are just breathing a sigh of relief right. about that. And, and is this – I mean I wonder how much of this John Bolton brought on himself and, and ultimately how surprising this is because from the very beginning you came out that you were hearing from reports – He's not holding interagency meetings. He's not meeting with anybody. He's keeping, as I said, keeping the door closed. Writing papers himself. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so and John Bolton's never made any secret about who he is and maybe how he kind of wants to, you know, run a railroad. But this was the first time anybody actually seen him in a position in which he had to, at least nominally, had the responsibility of coordinating State Department, Pentagon, intelligence, et cetera. Didn't do it from the beginning. So, I mean, Tammy, in some sense, it should be no surprise that the system just worked around him. Um, on the one hand, it should be no surprise that the system just worked around him. On the other hand, I think the national security advisor position is one where you can only function in the way you just described, Shane, in the way that the job is intended when you have the trust and confidence of the president when you're speaking in the president's name. And whenever a national security advisor has not been able to speak with that authority. They have been ineffective and secretaries of defense and state have railroaded them or gone around them or sidelined them or whatever. So it's that is not unprecedented here. I think what is interesting is that Bolton is somebody who was brought on having wowed the president, but the president brought him on knowing that there was a particular dimension 
of national security policy on which John Bolton and Donald Trump had a profound disagreement, which is that Bolton likes the use of force and Trump does not. And Trump was very clear about that. And somehow Bolton couldn't adapt to that particular constraint, couldn't say like, okay, I'm here, you know, to speak on behalf of my boss and we see eye to eye on a lot of things, but this is a thing where I know I don't have the backing, so I shouldn't push it. Well, he didn't do that. He pushed it anyway. And I think we saw in the sort of near U.S. retaliatory strike on Iran in the Gulf this summer, we saw how close the United States came to a military confrontation that Donald Trump has made very clear he doesn't want. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the turning point where Trump was like, you know what, I was clear with him and that wasn't enough. So now I'm just going to get some other people to handle this stuff for me. All right. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will kick us off here. I just wanted to flag for readers, uh, listeners. Well, listeners, you may probably our listeners do read, I'm guessing. We have very literate <laughs> listeners, Shane. They can yeah. read. They're they very adite. They can read. Uh, a new book by uh, journalist James Varini called They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the caliphate. Um, James Verini has been um, – well, he first, I guess, arrived in Iraq in summer of 2016 um, to write about the Islamic State uh, and was there covering the jihadis and the sort of the big battle of Mosul, which was their last stand. And just reading from the book here uh, from the cover, not knowing it would go on for nearly a year nor that it would become, in the words of the Pentagon, quote, the most significant urban combat since World War II. I think it's going to be a very interesting book for readers. I have not had a chance to read it yet. Judging by the cover lines and people who blurb the book, this very much feels in the wheelhouse of rational security folks. Um, but check it out. They will have to die now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate by James Varini. Maybe timely. Maybe the Caliphate, Caliphate hasn't quite fallen, but we shall see. Check it out. Susan. I also have a book object lesson, but unlike Shane. Is that a project lesson? Yeah. That'll work. Um and it is dun, da, 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 me and Ben's book, which <laughs> now has a cover. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. Does that mean right. it's real? Give me your honest reaction, Shane. What do you think? Yeah. I like it. Oh, <laughs> such enthusiasm. Shane likes it. Not much enthusiasm. <laughs> Tammy loves it. You can't see her face. I, I love it. It is... Okay, so the book is called, Susan? It's called Unmaking the Presidency. And the cover is like a torn up postcard of the White House. Of the White House. I think it, I think it turned out we went through a I lot like of it. iterations of it. Um, you guys can go and pre-order it on Amazon and look you at the should, cover. You should right now. I think you I did should. pre-order mine. Did I'll pre-order, you? I can pre-order it again. Yeah, I can pre-order yeah like, you will. I can pre-order a second copy. <laughs> you can pre-order it as many times as you want. <laughs> and I ordered it without even seeing the cover. That's true, love. I like the cover. That's no, I'm just shitting with you. Um, anyway, cover. it's very exciting. It really makes the book feel real. Yeah. No, it's when, like, you see cover art, it's like, Whoa. The cover actually reminds me of the story about Trump tearing up all the things in the Oval Office. Yeah. Like, yeah. physically tearing them up. Yeah. And people having to tape them back together again. <laughs> Ooh, um, I'm going to do Ben's object for him since uh, apparently he had to go teach the youngins at Harvard. Um, so, so someone named Mick Limerick, and I do not know who Mick Limerick is, but tweets that Steely Dan's Donald Fagan and Benjamin Wittes possibly separated at birth. I'm looking at a picture of Dan, Steely Dan, Don Fagan. I don't think he looks anything like Ben Wittes. 
Although they do have similar taste in ties. I, I will say I'm a huge Steely Dan fan, and I am also a fan of Donald Fagan's solo career. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he looks anything like Ben. I don't Lewis. either. I what? don't really either. I I guess like the eyes maybe a little bit like just the close cropped gray hair. There are two eyes and a nose and a mouth. So. <laughs> they have that in common. But thank you, Mick Limerick. Mick Limerick, I see where you're going, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Does, does not Ben also a Steely Dan fan? Yeah, you okay. know. All yeah. right. It's okay. Yeah. Well, they won't be playing us out today, but if they were, they'd be doing it now because that's the end of the podcast, you guys. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can get Ben's new Steely Dan tribute album. <laughs> oh, at, I would love to see that. Ben Singh's Steely Dan Lawfare store dot blog. <laughs> <laughs> you can... T- Find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Whenever you download the podcast or subscribe, please remember to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the show as well, and we really appreciate that. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jim Comey and his touching tribute to Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I think he's playing that on a loop. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Is that all <laughs> I'm pretty sure Sophia Yang could do a mean cover of that too. But she's off in Hong Kong covering what's going on there. Thank you to Sophia. And Stay safe, there. Sophia. Stay safe. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.